I want to begin this morning, if you have your Bibles, in John chapter 13. And I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 5 to kind of set the scene for our theme today. It says, It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What I love about this scene, what I love about this moment is that we see Jesus setting the table. We see Jesus as the host of this feast. But then we see Jesus make this transition, this, this hospitality transition from host of the feast to serving those at the feast. And if you've been here over the last few weeks, you know that we've been in a series called Habits of the House, where we're talking about the different habits of this house, of Harbor Church. What, what makes us who we are? Why do we do what we do? And so we began by talking about how we want to be in the habit of prioritizing the presence of God that we want to start there. We want to start by prioritizing the presence of God. And then we talked about how we want to be submitted to Scripture. And then last week, we talked about how we want to be a house that trusts God with what we have, believing that when we trust God with what we have, He will give us what we need. And if you kind of look at the habits that we've talked about so far, the, the principles that we've talked about so far, they're all kind of guiding principles, if you think about the presence of God throughout Scripture was often used and referred to as a means to guide his people, that they would actually follow where his presence went. There was this season where the children of Israel, God's people, were wandering through the wilderness, but they were always following God's presence. It was his presence that was guiding them. And then the, the Bible talks about the word of God as a lamp unto our feet. And you don't really need a lamp for your feet if you're standing still. You really only need a lamp for your feet if you are moving, if you are taking steps, if you need to see where you are going. So the presence of God and the word of God guides us. And our ability to trust God guides us. Because if we withhold our trust from God, we will stay put. We will stay where we are. We will not step forward. And there are habits in our lives that guide us. And there are habits in our lives that tend to ground us. And today we're talking about one of those habits that grounds us because often who we are is made up of our habits. And when you look at the language of scripture, the language of scripture it is all language of the people of God really being the family of God. It talks about his followers as children of God. It talks about God as father. It talks about the church as a house. In fact, when you look at the scripture and you break down how followers of Jesus are described, the word that we have really adopted primarily in modern culture is the word Christian. We identify ourselves as Christian. There's, there's nothing wrong with identifying yourself as Christian, but when you look in the scriptures, the word Christian is really only used three times to describe the followers of Jesus. The word disciple is used 268 times to describe followers of Jesus. 
So that is why we exist to make disciples. But, but the reason that we like to say that we function as family is because the number one term used to describe followers of Jesus more than 350 times in the Bible is brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, it's it's a term of family, it's a term of relationship, and the language that you use to describe yourselves often reflects how you act. It often reflects what you think of yourself, and when we think about the symbols of the faith— you might think it, perhaps you grew up in a Catholic background, and so maybe, maybe a symbol of the faith would be uh, the, the Mother Mary, or perhaps just even as a Christian, the symbol of a faith would be the cross or the empty tomb. But in the early church, in the early days of the church, the, the symbol that represented what the church gathered around was the table that the early church actually gathered around the table. See, what we have to realize all throughout Scripture when the Apostle Paul is writing letters to the churches, we think of churches like this. We think that he is writing to certain leadership that that is gathering together for a message, and there was an element of that. But if you notice at the beginning of his letters, what he generally says is, when you gather together to eat, when you gather together to eat, So for the early Christian church, the the gathering did not have a meal. The gathering was a meal. They would gather around the table. In fact, if you look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 46, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. It's describing the early church. And three times within that description, it talks about eating and gathering around the table. Three times it talks about breaking bread. Now, this was before the printing press. This was before the computer. If you wanted to emphasize something, you could not put it in bold. You could not italicize it. You could not underline it. You had to repeat it. And so three times, Luke, the writer of Acts, says when they would gather together, they would gather around the table. They would gather around the table. They would gather around the table. Life around the table is central to the Christian way of life. It's central to the Christian way of life. Just to show you a few more examples from the writings of Paul in Romans 16, chapter 3, he begins by saying, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Colossians 4, 15, Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Philemon 1, 1, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to the church in there and to the church that meets in in your home. The early church was committed to gathering around the table. And Jesus here in his final moments, it says he showed the full extent of his love to those who had followed him on this earth by gathering them around the table, by gathering them around the table. Jesus loved to feed people. 
Jesus loved to gather people around the table, and he loved to talk about the spiritual life as food and water, as sustenance, as something that you actually take in to your life. He talked about the being the bread of life. He talked about all of those who hunger and thirst. He said one of my favorite things Jesus said that I think is just kind of like under the radar, like, like gets you thinking is his disciples were talking about food, and Jesus said, I have food that you do not know about. Have you ever found out that somebody has food that you didn't know about when you were really hungry? And you're like, you have food that I don't know about? Why would you have food that I don't know about? A few, several years back when I was just a kid, we were traveling and I was with my dad and we were in this really, really remote part of Russia. If you've been around, you know, my family spent a lot of time there growing up. And, and, and quite frankly, especially as a child, the food was always horrible to me. That's no offense to the Russian culture. I just didn't grow up with it. I didn't like it. And we were in some of the poorest areas of the country. And so even the quality of the food that we ate was not really that high of quality. And so a lot of times we would get a lot of things made out of beets and we would get a lot of things made out of, yes, what I'm about to say is what I'm about to say, cow tongue, soup, steaks, shish kebabs, cow tongue, very rubbery. You can see the taste buds. It's not... It's not appetizing at all. And there was this one time where we were, we were splitting up into two different groups, and we knew that one of the groups was going to get the better food because they were going into a city where they were going to be speaking at a school, and then they were going to go to a restaurant. And when you went to a restaurant, even if there weren't a lot of great choices, there were choices. We were going to a church where they were going to cook for us. And this is a cultural situation where you eat what they put in front of you. Whatever it is, you eat what they put in front of you. And so we're going out to this rural church, and we are terrified. And my father, by the way, this is unrelated to the message. I'm just ranting at this point. My father sent me alone with the group that was going to the worst food, and he went to the city with the better food. And so we go, and we go to this church, and they show us around. They had just built this building out in this rural area, and we're really, you know, like there. But we are bracing because we are starving, and we know that we are about to have food set before us that we do not want to eat. And so we're, we're waiting, and we're sitting there, and we all sit down, and they stand up, and they said, the pastor's wife has personally cooked this meal for you today. And she is beaming at the front of the room. She is just as proud as she can possibly be. And I, they literally have it all laid out with like napkins over all the bowls. And she's beaming. And they say, she cooked this just for you. It's a very traditional meal. They literally built this thing up. They said, it is a very traditional meal. We hope you like it. And then they took all the napkins off. It was fried chicken and mashed potatoes. And she said, it's a traditional American meal. She said, I spent the last few weeks learning to make this food because I figured that you would probably get a lot of Russian food and you would probably be really feeling something uh, familiar but at this time. And I cannot tell you how much food we ate that day. We ate so much food that day because this lady, she had food that we did not know about. She had food that was better than anything we could have expected. And, and hunger unites us. And this is why so often when, when Jesus told parables, when Jesus tried to describe the kingdom of God, he used food and drink. He used the table because he knew that hunger unites us, that gathering around the table unites us. But when it comes to our families, like in our actual homes, not just within the church, in our actual homes, gathering around the table is a declining habit. 
You, you may not realize it, but it's a declining habit. Have you ever had something that was a habit that you were pretty good at, and then all of a sudden you realize that you'd completely fallen off of it? You didn't, even, you didn't even realize it in the moment. You got way down the road, and you're like, oh, I haven't done that for a really long time. For me, this is flossing. I remember it. I remember it every six months or so when I have a dentist appointment and I'm like, I got to like floss multiple times a day to try to build up my gum strength so that it's not embarrassing when the dentist gets in there. And gathering around the table is a declining habit despite the fact that numerous studies show that, that families that come to the table regularly have positive outcomes. They have better academics, better behavior, reduced drug and alcohol use. They're, they're better in school. What it points to is this, that what you center your life around actually matters. That what you choose to gather around actually matters. That, that the center of your life matters. And it's no mistake that it seems as though society is suffering at a time where our tables are shrinking. Our time at the table is shrinking. Our, our tables are shrinking. We're spending less time around the table because we understand that as goes the family, so goes the society. That when we gather around the table, that is where change happens. As I was studying for this and looking into this, I, I started to realize all these alarming stats about how time around the table was, was declining, that family time around the table was declining, less days, less actual time around the table when you do sit around the table. And there was some fascinating statistics about how actually the, the center of the home used to be the table, and now the center of the home is generally the television, and how if you think about it, that kind of, that kind of tells us a little bit about our psychology, where one is for gathering, one is for community, and one is for consumption. And these things shape the way we think. These things shape the way that we live. But I found this one interesting study where they went out and they basically felt that they had heard consumer reports after consumer report that people were complaining in restaurants that the size of the tables were shrinking. That, that when they would go to restaurants, that, that, that they felt like the, the size of the tables was shrinking. A, a table for four was, was smaller. They couldn't seem to fit all of the things. And we actually had this experience a few weeks ago. We were out with some friends from church, and it just felt like there was no room for anything on the table. But what the study found was, was applicable to this idea of the table of God in the churches that the, the tables had not actually shrunk. What they found was that the restaurant industry actually just serves more plates. They separate things onto more plates now. And so when they used to bring a basket of bread, everybody would just eat from the basket of bread. Now they bring a basket of bread and they bring like five plates for that basket of bread. And then when they bring the food, everybody already has a plate. And see, this is one of the barriers to our gathering around the table is that we have as the church added too many plates to the table. And what I mean by that is this, is there's this moment in scripture where the, the Christians are debating if, if the Gentiles, the people who have just come into the faith. Now at this time, a lot of Jews would not have believed that, that people could even enter into the faith if they were not Jewish. And they're debating if they do enter into the faith, do they need to be circumcised? In other words, do they need to follow our rules? Do they need to follow our laws? And in Acts 15 verse 9, Paul says, it is my judgment, therefore that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. It is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. In other words, what he is saying is we should not add extra things on to what they need to be followers 
of Jesus. See, we make the table smaller when we add too many plates. Let me tell you what that looks like in the church. It looks like you can sit at our table if you vote how we vote. You can sit at our table if you look how we look. You can sit at our table if you dress how we dress. You can, you can sit at our table if you follow. You just, have to, you just have to follow all of these things that we put in front of you in order to sit at our table. When, if you notice that when Jesus served a meal, Jesus served the meal. That, that Jesus took the people who were gathered around the table and it was Jesus that broke the bread. It was Jesus that served the wine. See, I think what we have to realize in the church is that it is our responsibility to get people to the table, but we can trust God to serve them what they need to be served. We can trust God with the meal. We can trust God to break his body. We can trust God to pour out his blood. We can trust God if we will just get them to the table. And so often we want to set other things before them before we welcome them at the table. That you have, you have to follow these rules if you want to sit at our table. We have to quit adding unnecessary plates to the table. The other thing that, that contributes to these, these smaller tables that we are experiencing is that often we disqualify ourselves from the table. We disqualify ourselves from the table. There's this parable in the book of Matthew where Jesus tells of, of a man who is preparing a wedding feast for his son. And he says, go out and get everyone who is invited and tell them that the feast is ready. But when he goes out and he tells everyone that the feast is ready, they, they turn down the invitation to the table. They turn down the invitation to the table. They, they say they're busy doing other things. They say they're not qualified to be at the party, but, but they disqualify themselves from the table. And if we are going to lead the way in the church, we have to be the ones to first accept the invitation to the table. All that means in this day and age is that we have to be the ones to show up, that we have to be the ones to realize that you are invited just the way you are. So come to the table. Come and find your seat at the table. This has been something that our family has been more committed to lately. We've, we've always been pretty good about eating meals together, but we've tried to really get in a rhythm of making sure that certain nights are kind of non-negotiable, that we are going to be around the table. And the other night we were sitting around the table and, and as so often happens with kids, a friend was having a birthday and so they started talking about their birthdays because kids love their birthdays. And so they started talking about their plans for their birthday. And our next kid with a birthday is Olivia. She's going to be three years old in October. And, and she, you know, doesn't talk a ton, but, but she talks a decent amount. And so they started asking her, like, really simple questions about what she wanted to do for her birthday. And they said, you know, like, do you want to have a farm birthday? Because she loves farm. She said, no, no farm. And they kept going through things. And finally, they hit the nail on the head. They said, do you want an Elsa and Anna party? She said, yes. I want an Elsa Anna party. And we said, well, who do you want to come to your party? And she said, um, Sophia, Mommy, Daddy, Ethan. That's Ashton's brother. We don't know why he's on the list. <laughs> and uh, we said, anybody else? Because we have an older daughter, Isabella. And she said, I don't think so. <laughs> and we were like, what about Bella? And she said, um, No. And we all started laughing, so she thought it was funny. So we're like, no, what about Bella? She's going to come to your party, right? She said, no, no Bella, no Bella. And finally, I had to be like, listen, um, it's my house. <laughs> I'm paying for the party. 
Isabella is going to be at the party. But isn't it interesting how young we are when we start to get selective about who we want at our party? Isn't it interesting how young we are we get selective about who we want at our table? See, what, what we have to realize is it's not our house. It's not our party. We didn't pay for it. And so our job is just to get people to the table. Our job is just to get people to the party. Because someone already paid for it. And it's someone else's house. And he gets to determine the guest list. And that's why we can't do the, the, the third thing that we so often do, which is we disqualify others from joining us at the table. We disqualify others. If we don't disqualify ourselves, if we find our seat at the table, so often we disqualify others. And it's incredible how much we lean towards wanting to sit with our own people. Have you ever been at like a wedding reception or an event where there's a bunch of tables and a bunch of people? And the first thing you do when you walk in is you're like scanning for like, where is a table of people that I know? I don't, need, I don't need empty seats. I need empty seats at a table with people I know. I would rather go eat this food in my car than sit with somebody I don't know. And we're always scanning. We're always selecting who we sit at. And so often we disqualify others from joining us. And the reason we do it is that we have been deceived into believing that society is shaped by external forces. We've been deceived into believing that society is shaped by entertainment, We've been deceived in believing that society is shaped by politics, and so we fight those culture wars. We fight the culture wars of entertainment. We fight the culture wars of boycotting. We fight the political wars of who to elect, who not to elect. We fight all of those battles rather than paying attention to our own table. We pay more attention to who we elect than who we invite into our homes. We pay more attention to maybe what is on the big screen than what's actually happening in our homes. And the truth is, we act like we do that because they're bigger issues. We act like we do that because we look and we say, oh, this is, this is a national issue. But the truth is that it's easier. The truth is that it's easier to, to show up one day and cast a vote than it is to show up every day around the table. It's easier to show up one day and cast a vote than it is to gather your family around your table and realize that real societal change happens when we gather around the table. And we need to worry more about the people that we are inviting. See, what, what, what often rubs us the wrong way is the same thing that, that rubbed the Pharisees and the religious leaders the wrong way in Jesus' day. And that's that Jesus included everyone, not just in his ministry, but Jesus included everyone in his miracles. See, it's easy to include everyone in your ministry. It's easy to include everyone in your thing. That, that makes sense because you want a crowd. Of course, anyone can, sure. Yes, I'll, in, I'll, I'll, invite you into the, I'll invite you into this ministry. But Jesus took it a step further and he invited everybody into his miracles. And I wonder if we would have had the same posture because I don't know about you, but I think there are moments where faced with someone who is blind, who needed sight, I might just ask the question, if I heal these eyes, what are you going to be looking at? If I heal these legs, where are you going to be going? If I heal these ears, what are you going to be listening to? But Jesus doesn't ask those questions. Jesus just brings sight to the blind. Jesus just brings wellness to the lame. Jesus just opens the deaf ears. Jesus invited everyone into his ministry before he qualified them. Jesus invited everyone into his ministry without asking them questions. John 7, 37 says, On the last and the greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty 
come to me and drink. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. I think it's also significant that that Jesus said, come to me. Jesus was inviting people into his space. I think a lot of times we we get this mindset that is, is not a bad mindset, and it is a necessary kind of first step of a mindset as we think about reaching people, as we think about bringing people in and, and gathering around the table, but we get stuck in this mindset of, I'll come to you. I, I, I will come to you, but I won't necessarily make space for you in my world. It's kind of this, this mentality that we get sometimes, even if you're dealing with, with homeless situations, where I'll pass you a meal out the window, but I'm not going to give you a seat at my table. I'm not going to invite you into my space, into my home. And I think sometimes that mentality bleeds into our mentality of how we reach people through the churches, that we'll come to you, but we don't necessarily want you at our table. We'll bring you the love of Jesus. We'll let you know that Jesus loves you, but we're not necessarily going to make a space for you at our table. But we will not be a church of people that just drives by broken and hurting people and lets them know that Jesus loves them without also letting them know that there's a place at our table. That also lets them know there's a seat at our table, that I have a seat for you. See, what happens when we disqualify people from the table is we deny them an encounter with Jesus. When we disqualify them from the table, we deny them an encounter with Jesus. Jesus was repeatedly called out for who he ate with, for who he spent time with. Because see, at this time, to to gather around a table, to sit around the table with people was a sign that that you were showing them hospitality, that you were giving them dignity. And, And there were people that didn't believe certain people were worthy of that dignity, and yet Jesus gathered him, them around his table. See, what's more telling is not just that Jesus welcomed them around the table, but they were comfortable with him around the table. There there must have been something about Jesus that let people know that they could sit at his table without fear, that they could sit at his table without fear of judgment. They could sit at his table and be accepted See, his invitation to join them at the table always led to a life-changing encounter. There's this moment in Matthew chapter 11 where Jesus is having dinner at Matthew's house and, and it's really a rough crowd. The Bible says that, that present in that place are tax collectors and, and sinners and prostitutes. And verse 11 says, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Again, in Luke 7, verse 36 through 39, it says, When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. She kissed them and poured out perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. If he only knew, the thing is he knew, that he knew, and he still allowed her to have an encounter with him. He knew who she was. He knew her past. He knew her present. He knew the situation that that she was in, and he still allowed her to have an encounter with him. 
He, he didn't make her get everything right before she experienced his love. He didn't make her get everything right before she experienced his kindness and his gentleness and his goodness. Jesus welcomed everyone at his table, even those who he knew their sin, even those who he knew their fault. In this moment, it is not just evident all throughout the life of Jesus. It's evident in this moment that we began in where Jesus is gathering his disciples and it says he's showing them the fullness of his love through a meal just before he is crucified. Have you ever been at a meal that you thought was going to be good and then somebody like dropped a bomb on it? Like somebody said something that just took the whole meal off course. Somebody said something that just sucked all of the air out of the room. Because Jesus is sitting with his disciples. Again, the Bible says showing them the fullness of his love through this meal. He's broken the bread. He's poured the wine. They're eating. They're they're enjoying. They're celebrating this feast together. And then Jesus says in John 15, 21, very truly I tell you, One of you is going to betray me tonight. If that doesn't take the air out of the room, like can you just imagine if you were at Thanksgiving dinner and everybody had made their plates and everybody was enjoying the wonderful meal that had been cooked all day and then like the patriarch of your family, you've gone around and said what everybody's thankful for and then he's like, one of you is gonna really let me down tonight. I mean, you would never forget that meal. You would never forget that moment. He says, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. I love that. Simon's like, ask him which one he means. Like, I'm not going to do it, but you should ask him you should ask him what he means. But you know what I love about this is that it says his disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which one of them he meant. In that moment where Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, nobody knew which one it was going to be. Nobody, let me say it this way, nobody was sure that it wasn't going to be them. Nobody was sure that they weren't going to be the one to betray Jesus. Nobody was sure that they were in the right. Nobody was sure that they were the pure ones. See, Judas is scary. We think of Jesus as scary because he's close to Jesus. He's at the table. He had a position. He sat in the presence of Jesus. He saw the miracles of Jesus, but his heart was not with Jesus. And so we think of that as very scary, and it is scary but it's scarier to think that when Jesus said to these apostles, these who had followed him the closest, he said, one of you is going to betray me, and they were not sure which one it was going to be. Yeah, I, I think that what we have to realize is that it's a lot easier to accept the Judas that's sitting next to us when we realize that it could be us. That it's a lot easier to accept those who who seem like the betrayer. It's a lot easier to accept those who don't seem like us when we realize that, but by the grace of God, it could be us. That we have to actually examine ourselves. We don't sit at the table and say, well, it's not going to be me. I know it's not going to be me. No, we sit at the table and say, God, examine me. Where is my heart? Could it be me? Am I going to be the one? They said no one was sure what he was talking about. But it was Judas that walked away from the table to betray Jesus. But again, what I think is interesting is Jesus 
did not send him away. He had to choose to walk away. He had to choose to walk away. He wasn't forced from the table. That Jesus, even knowing that Judas was going to betray him, he didn't block him from the door. He didn't tell him not to come to the feast. No, he welcomed him at the table all the way up to the moment when he walked away. All the way up to the moment where he walked away, Jesus said, you're welcome at my table. You're welcome at my table. See, the, play, the table is a place where we do our, to examine our own hearts, where we are to examine our own heart, our own relationship with Jesus. The moment where we say, Jesus, is it me? Is it me? Could it be me? And today we're going to take a moment here and we're going to come around the table together in communion because see, Jesus in this moment, he said, he said, when you come together like this, when you break this bread, when you drink this juice, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And this was just after this moment where they had examined themselves. And so I want us to take a moment and all across this room, you can bow your heads and you can close your eyes and just take a moment and examine yourself. And here's, here's what I want you to think about in this moment is think about, God, what, what areas am I vulnerable in? God, what areas need your attention in my life? God, what areas could I be the one that walks away? What are the areas that could cause me to slip? What could be the areas that cause me to stumble and fall? What could those areas be? But then I want you to ask your, yourself this question. Ask yourself, have I disqualified myself from the table? Have I looked at my own life? Have I looked at the decisions I've made? And have I, have I disqualified myself from the table? And then ask yourself, who am I disqualifying from the table? Are there people that I would say are not welcome at the table? Are there people that I would say are not, do not have a seat at our table. We're just gonna take a moment right now before we take of the bread, before we take of the cup and just take a moment and examine ourselves this morning.